Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between, all you non-binaries and gender fluids too, this is a podcast for all. Welcome to Jamie's Wee Podcast, episode three. Now, there's still no sign of a sponsor, but this week, I had a couple of inquiries, so let's just watch this space. But in the meantime, let's just enjoy this royalty-free music that I found on YouTube. Right, let's get right into it this week. This is episode three. We're in full motion, full steam ahead. Um, I've kept it consistent. Three Thursday nights in a row now I've been here. Three, two Sundays in a row that I've posted. Hopefully this Sunday is when you're watching or listening to this podcast. So the consistency is there. Thank you to everyone who is continuing to listen. The real MVPs are the people who are listening to the very end of the one hour podcast and the one hour 27 minute podcast. If you've made it through to both of those podcasts, to the end of both of those podcasts then, thank you very much. You guys are the real MVPs. But yes, I thought I'd keep it lighthearted this week uh, by talking about the worst year of my life, how it almost turned me into a full-blown alcoholic to the point it probably might have killed me, um, and the unlikely hero that saved me, um, you know, and how trauma can sometimes be buried so deep within you that you can't even see it manifest in your day-to-day life. How you can be blind to trauma. How you can completely mask trauma. That's that's pretty much what happened in the worst year of my life. Um, but before I get started, this is going to be my last episode recorded here in Bali for the foreseeable future. I am leaving in literally tw- less than 12 hours my flight is. I'm getting picked up at half past four in the morning. Um, I'm heading back to Perth to see Ivana for Valentine's Day. But also because my, my 30 day visa is up this this Sunday, so I needed to leave anyway. But mostly because of Valentine's Day, of course. Um, so I'm going to need to find some new hardware as soon as I get to Perth. I don't think I will be able to afford a studio in Perth. Plus, um, you know, for future episodes, this is going to be the last time, hopefully, that you just get me on my own. There's only so much that I can talk about to keep you engaged. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping to get some guests on in the near future. So having brand new hardware, which I can take on the road so I can go to people rather than expect them to come to me. Um, it's going to be, that's going to be the next investment. So as soon as I get to Perth, I'm going to look for some microphones. Um, and yeah, it's going to be good to mix up, I suppose. It's been fantastic having this, this amazing studio. Um, and I will be back. I will be back in the studio at some point. I will be back in Bali in two or three weeks, hopefully. Um, but for now, I'm going to need to find an alternative solution. But it will be good to mix up. Um, my dream, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, the dream podcast situation is imagine having a podcast in, like, the Maldives. You know how all these influencers and Instagrammers go and they take the same pictures and they do the same shite. You know, it's all the same stuff that you see. But imagine actually having a podcast in the Maldives. Just like me and Ivana sitting by, like, the pool... Um, with the blue on blue backdrop, just talking, talking about the Maldives. That's the dream. I'm setting that target. That's the dream. A podcast in the Maldives. Let's make it happen. But yeah, from here on in, ideally, I want to do interviews. Um, I tried to get someone on this week. I left it too late. I need to be better at planning ahead. Um, and I've got a few people that are going to be here in March that may be interested in coming on the podcast. Some exciting guests who may be able to come on the podcast. So that is the plan 
for the next few episodes. But the next episode, you should have Ivana here with me. Um, I know everyone of you want to know what's happening with Ivana and how she's getting on and with the whole eye situation. So I reckon that the next episode will be all about Ivana's eye situation. So it's going to be exciting for not only to see Ivana, but to get involved in the podcast. I'm now three episodes deep. Um, and again, I think you're all probably getting tired of just me rambling on into this microphone. So it'll be good to get someone to interact with, um, which I will enjoy, and I'm sure you will enjoy too. All right, so. But let's get into it. It's time to get into the episode, the lovely, cheery, light-hearted episode about the worst year of my life. Um, the worst year of my life was 2008. So I was a 22-year-old man or boy um, at the start of the year, and I was a 22, 23-year-old man or boy by the end of the year and up until then my life my life had been pretty trauma free I was very lucky I mean you know I did have a few traumas just the usual stuff growing up I changed primary schools and primary five which I would have been about eight or nine which is traumatic for any eight or nine year old having to go to a new place to learn to make new friends um so that was pretty much the only traumatic thing that happened to me at high school at school so I guess I was lucky in that respect I did grow up with two sets of parents. My mum and dad split up when I was very young. Um, so I've got a mum, a dad, a stepmom and a stepdad. But as I have said previously, I could not have hand-chosen two better step-parents and I am very blessed and very lucky to have two sets of parents and four parents that love me and have always put me first and have always looked after me. So again, trauma-free. And saying that, my mum did move to London with my stepdad later in my teenage years. Um, and that was due to work, you know, but they had the opportunity to leave earlier than that, but fundamentally, my mum wouldn't leave me until I was older, so my mum moving to London when I think I was about 16 or 17, that was probably the most traumatic thing that happened to me in my teenage years, and that was it. I've had a, a really, relatively free, relatively trauma-free life. Uh, I know I'm very lucky um, because a lot of people have a lot of traumas in the earlier life, um, people lose parents, people lose grandparents, people, you know, go through some horrific things. So I, I feel very lucky to have, have a, had a, a trauma-free life. But that was up until 2008 when it was like the fucking floodgates opened. It was like, Jamie, I forgot about you. Um, <laughs> when the, the trauma god, um, he, he forgot about me. Um, so he came along in 2008 and he came along with a vengeance. Let me tell you that. Um, so I'm going to take you through what happened in 2008 because... It feels a bit like a dream, like far too much happened within a short space of time. And it wasn't until I was writing out these notes, I was like, wow, that is, I cannot believe all of that stuff happened within one year of my life. But that was a very defining year. And I thought I may as well share it. I may as well share it. This is the third episode. I thought I may as well get all the, the negative, not the negative stuff, but all the trauma out. Um, so it kind of sets the foundation and maybe we can get into something a wee bit more lighthearted next week. So I'm going to start, I'm going to take you through the entire year. It's a bit of a timeline, so stay with me, stick with me, um, because I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to walk you through it. So let's, let's start, let's start with the first trauma, trauma number one. Now, as I say, I've got two step parents, stepmom and a stepdad, and the first one relates to my stepdad's family. Um, so it was my stepdad's mum, actually, who was like a grandmother to me because my step parents 
got together with my parents at a young age. So I, I've kind of grew up just knowing that, you know, I've just got two sets of parents. So it's just something I've always been used to, which means I've got like double the set of grandparents, double the set of aunts, uncles and cousins and all that kind of stuff. So I've, I'm, I'm very lucky to have a huge family that feel like immediate family. And I, my stepdad's mum, Alan, my stepdad, Alan, his mum um, was like a grandmother to me. Um, and there was one day, I think it was, I don't know, it was at the start of 2008. This was the start of the timeline, start of the, the traumatic year. And I was driving by our house in Scotland. And my mum and my stepdad were living down down south at the time. They were living in London. And I was driving by her house um, in my works van. And I seen an ambulance in the lay-by outside of her house. And I was like, that's weird. That's, you know, is that, is that Alan's mum that's, that's, that's getting in that? So I stopped and I just had a look and right enough it was um it was alan's mum that was that was coming coming out in the to the ambulance and i says are you okay is everything all right she she appeared to be okay she was you know she, she didn't seem, seem to be hurt or anything like that and she says jamie do not worry about me it's all okay there's nothing to worry about don't tell your mum don't tell alan um it's just a precaution i'm just going into the hospital don't don't worry about it so the first thing that I done naturally was to to call my mum and call my stepdad, and just to tell them that I'd seen uh, seen her get in the back of the ambulance, and they flew up the next day. Um, they had absolutely no idea what was going on, so they flew up the next day, and it transpired that she she was pretty ill, um, and her health you know deteriorated pretty quickly after that. I don't think she actually got to a hospital after that. Um, so I feel I thought it was very weird. I thought it was very eerie the fact that I, that I drove by that day just by chance and seen her getting at the ambulance just by chance, and that if I hadn't, then would my mum and stepdad have been aware of our situation? I'm sure they would have maybe a few days later, but I just felt it was very like coincidental that I just happened to be driving by at that time. So as I say, she was in hospital for a wee while and then there was one night and again this is two coincidences two eerie things that happened throughout that situation for me there was one night and I swear down this is a dream that I had I had a dream that I was driving by the house I looked up to the window it was dark outside at this point in time I looked up to the window and it was almost like I could see a silhouette getting up out of a bed and it was like they were pulling like wires from them, just just pulling wires from the chest, you know. When someone gets out of a hospital bed, and like a like one of the movies where like someone discharges themselves and tries to escape the hospital, they just like pull all the things off. That's what it was like. So that's what I could see in my, in my dream. It was like it was like someone was like up in the window, up in the bedroom window, and they were just pulling all these wires off themselves, almost like they were they were about to discharge themselves. And um, I woke up. And my mum was calling me and my mum told me that Alan's mum had passed away. And I just thought, I, like, and the dream was so clear. I could, I, I was like, I could not believe I'd literally just had that dream and my mum was calling me to give me that news. And it was just, it was, it's hard to describe how I felt. I think the dream really caught me off guard. And it was the first thing I could think about, but it, was, didn't, it wasn't the first thing that I wanted to say. I didn't want to say, oh, I just had a dream that that happened. But that was pretty traumatic, um, losing uh, my stepdad's mum because she was such a, 
you know, as I say, she was like a grandmother to me. She was an amazing woman, very kind, a great sense of humour, fantastic sense of humour. And that was, a, that was a huge loss and it was, it was really sad and it was hard to see my stepdad lose his mum. It was hard to see my aunties lose their mum. It was hard to see my cousins lose a grandmother. Um, so that, that, that hit the family really hard at that point. So that was, that was the beginning of it. That was the beginning of it. And shortly after that, um, one of my friends who I grew up playing football or soccer, as you mad Yankees call it. Um, one of my, my good friends, um, he, he sadly passed away. And it was through really, it was traumatic circumstances, a freak, freak accident. Um, age, same age as me. Um, and I, as I say, at that time, I was only 22, 23. So he was the same age as me at that point, just a young man. Now, and I hadn't been with the football team for maybe three or four years, but it was one of the football teams where, you know, we played together for three or four years and we were all best mates. You know, we always looked after each other when we played football. We all went through battles together. We went to tournaments together. We, we played in a Scottish Cup final. We won tournaments in Holland. Um, we done we done lodge with nights out. You know, we, we, we were all together through our, our later teenage years. So we were all like brothers. You know, even if we hadn't seen each other for a long time, we felt like brothers. So to hear that news was just, I just, I, I couldn't comprehend. I, I couldn't compute because someone my age, I'd never lost someone my age before. And that was just so, and under the circumstances, I won't repeat what happened out of respect, but it was a horrible freak accident. And his funeral was the first time that I'd seen some of these guys and some of my mates, the coaches, the players, the parents of other players in three or four years. And it was just such a surreal get together, you know, for a 22 year old, another 22 year olds all getting back together for, for this reason. That was really, that was a difficult one to compute. And that happened very quickly after losing um, my stepdad's mum. And then from there, it just keeps getting better and better. Um, my two grandpas became ill. So my mum's dad, who's Billy, uh, my dad's dad, Tommy, um, they both started to become poorly. My, my, my dad's dad, Tommy, had to go in for a, an operation. And unfortunately, my, my mum's dad, Billy, contracted uh, lung cancer. So both of them became pretty sick, pretty ill um, at that point. And having lost the two people um, who were massive parts of my life previously, you know, it, it did start to, to play on my mind. I, I wasn't used to this kind of trauma so quickly, so, so much back to back. And it was around this time, um, we were now into the summer, um, and I went to Mexico, which was a, a welcome break. Um, and I had one of the best days of my entire life in Mexico. Now, it was special. It was one of the days where you can remember every single detail. The sunset was perfect. The weather was perfect. Swimming with dolphins, beautiful beaches, culture, just everything was right. Every single thing was right. Even though everything around me, my world felt like it was collapsing around me. 
everything felt right in that one day, in that one moment, especially the sunset. Coming back from Isla Maqueres, the island of women, I think that translates to. And we're coming back from Isla Maqueres to Cancun. I'm sure if you've been to Cancun, you've probably been on a day trip to Isla Maqueres. If you're going to Cancun, make sure you go to Isla Maqueres because it's such a cool wee island. Um, tropical, beaches, beautiful blues, you know, old school culture. You can you can hire a golf buggy and drive around the island. There's loads to do there. Um, so it's such a fantastic day in Isla Maqueres. And I swear to God, when I was coming back on the boat, it was a catamaran actually, <laughs> catamaran. You know, I was back when I used to earn some good money. I can afford a catamaran. Uh, it wasn't my catamaran, it was a shared catamaran. But anyway, we were coming back and this sunset was absolutely beautiful and I felt so relaxed, I felt so chilled. The temperature was perfect, beautiful breeze, sunset. And Bob Marley's Three Little Birds song came on. You know that one that's like, don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. That one. That's the song that came on. He sings it a wee bit better than me. Uh, mind you, after a whiskey or two, uh, I'm, I'm, I can sound a wee bit like Bob Marley in my head anyway. Oh, by the way, I'm not drinking whiskey tonight. I'm actually on the Coca-Cola. I don't know if you noticed that. I can only apologise that I've broke the whiskey uh, consistency. It's because the flight is... Uh, the flight to Perth is so soon. I don't want to get on the flight either still drunk on whiskey or hungover on whiskey. I'm, I'm going to be seeing Havana tomorrow. I don't want to get on a flight drunk or hungover. You know what I mean? I just want to get into tomorrow fresh. Uh, the last two shows, I've went on to finish both bottles of whiskey and I'm telling you the next day is a struggle to edit the video. So today I'm on the Coca-Cola. I can only apologise um, to those of you who are invested in the, the whiskey gimmick, but I'm, I'm on the Coca-Cola. But anyway, I digress. So Bob Marley's Three Little Birds came on and I thought, it just felt like one of those moments, it was just like, it's like Vincent van Gogh painted that moment. You know, it just, it was, it was created. It was a, it was a creation. It was just perfection. And I thought, you know what, as, at that point in time when my, it felt like my world was collapsing back home, and I had this guy singing it in my ear in a beautiful sunset in Mexico, everything's perfect, saying, don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. And I thought, you know what? You know what? Everything is going to be all right. No matter how bad things get, everything in the end is going to be all right. And to this day, for those of you who are on YouTube, you can maybe see this. I've got, a, I've got the tattoo. I've got a tattoo on my chest. And it says, three little birds. And that, I've got a tattoo of that moment. Three little birds. And that's the reason why because it's just one of those moments in life that I didn't want to forget. It just, it was one of those moments where I felt so down, I felt so upset, I felt so pissed off about life. But this song spoke to me and says, Jamie, don't fucking worry, right? Just stop worrying. As bad as things have been, as bad as things might get, everything in the end is always going to be okay, all right? And saying that, when I got home, my papa, uh, Tommy, passed away pretty much days after. Uh, and it was it was pretty horrific. I mean, I can I can I can jest and joke about it. I'm not joking about it. There's not there's nothing to be funny about death. But you know, you've got to try and 
after all these years of grieving, you've got to try and put a funny spin on it because if I was to ever die, I wouldn't want somebody to mourn me forever and more. I'd want people to make jokes about my death and make jokes about me. So that's that, and that's just the Scottish way, try to make humour at a bad situation. But yes, my, my papa Tommy, my dad's dad, passed away under horrific circumstances. Um, again, I keep using the word horrific and traumatic, but that's what 2008 was. It was a pretty horrific and traumatic circum, uh, pretty horrific and traumatic year. So it played out like this. My papa went in for an operation. Me and my dad um, went to visit my papa in hospital shortly after his operation. And I, I mean, like my dad's brothers and sister and cousins and all that kind of thing. Everyone was there to go and visit my papa. And all of a sudden, it was one of the, those moments where everything went wrong. He was still with us at this point and he was by all means meant to be making a recovery. Operation went okay, it was just a matter of, you know, when he gets better after that. And it was one of those moments like you only ever see on the fucking TV. The only moments, it's one of those moments you, you wish you'd only ever seen on TV. When the doctors say, sorry, you'll need to leave. Um, there's something's not right, quite right here. So we left the room and then the next minute we were all ushered into a room together and we were told that my papa, my papa Tommy, had passed away. So we went there to visit him, to say hello and see how he was getting on, expecting him to be on the mend and getting better. And all of a sudden we're in a room being told that he's no longer with us. And this was days after I got back from Mexico, by the way. I think it was the 26th of July that my my, un my papa Tommy passed away. And my papa Tommy was, he was a huge part of my life. Um, I'm very close to all of my family, all of my family, especially when I was growing up back in Scotland. And me and my big cousin Gary, who is, you know, someone I look up to, my big cousin Gary is, you know, one of my best mates. We don't speak every day, but we spent a lot of time together in my teenage years between the ages, probably between the ages of like 11 and 16. Me and my big cousin Gary, we used to go to our papa's every single weekend from the, the minute I left school on a Friday until the last minute I could stay there on a Sunday, we would spend every single weekend at my Papa Tommy's house. And we would play like GoldenEye on the N64 and we'd play like, you know, championship manager, football manager. We would watch the football on a Saturday. We would put a bet on on the Saturday. We'd get a takeaway on the Saturday. And then, you know, on the sun like on the Sunday we'd still be there playing computer games, like and the weekends just used to fly by staying at my papa's. My papa, you know, he was great. He, he would never minded us being there all the time. Um, you know, as soon as he went to bed we had the TV downstairs. As soon as he, you know, went downstairs we had the TV upstairs and we were playing computer games all the time. It was just a fantastic environment. It was just such a home. You know, I mean my, back then they never had much, but it was a home. Um, this is actually a disgusting story, but uh, like they, they didn't want to waste the hot water. This is what it was like back in the day, back in my day, back in my day. I sound like I'm an old man here, but back in my day, um, when me and my big cousin used to go to my papa's house, uh, it was one of those situations where they didn't want to waste hot water. Uh, they didn't want to run two baths. So if we stayed there on a Friday night, 
you'd maybe get away with not having a, a wash on the Saturday morning, but you better believe by the Sunday morning you needed a wash because you were you were stinking. You were stinking because you know we'd go out and play football during the day. We'd come in and play uh, computer, playing N sixty four, playing Goldeneye and FIFA and Championship Manager. You're beating takeaways, so you better believe by the Sunday morning we needed a very good wash. Now it went in order of age. Now, the oldest in the house, which was my papa, he would get the first round of the hot water in the bath. And then it would go down the line. So if one of my uncles was in, then the uncle would get the next round of the hot water. Same bath water, by the way. And then it would go to my my cousin. He never ever, as much as I love my cousin, he never ever let me go on before him. Uh, I was always last to get in the bath which is absolutely rank rotten, now that I think about it. I probably came out dirtier than I went in. But that's 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 what it was like at my papa's house. It was like men behaving badly, you know? Takeaways, like drinking fucking fizzy juice, playing computer games, just playing football out the back. It was just fucking brilliant. I had some of the best years of my life at my papa's house with my uncles, with my big cousin, and it was just amazing amazing and so my papa Tommy passing away that just felt like that whole part of my life was gone it was finished like he was now that he was away that you know that just closed that chapter of my life a massive a massively enjoyable and important chapter of my life was just was just done and it was just heartbreaking under I mean those circumstances again it's just it's one of those moments you, you wish you only had ever seen on TV going like you know when they, they go in to see a relative and all of a sudden the doctors come running in and you know machines are making noises and all of a sudden the person's not with you anymore that's that's what happened and it was pretty horrific um and that was it my, my papa Tommy passed away um and then after the funeral and stuff like that you know, the full attention was now on my papa Billy, who was very, very poorly. This is my mum's dad, Billy. And he had lung cancer. So, you know, we knew what to expect with this one. There was nothing that we weren't expect expecting. Uh, but his health really deteriorated. And my papa is one of these guys, old school guys, you know, very skilled with his hands, you know, could build things, could you know, he could do anything. He was just a, a really manly man, like the dying breed of manly men. He could do anything. He could do absolutely anything, especially out drink anyone. He could out drink anyone. I remember my best friend, Snoop. That's right, his nickname's Snoop. You might hear, a, you, you'll probably hear a lot about Snoop on this podcast. And I know he's listening. Hiya, Snoop. But my best friend, Snoop, uh, in our earlier years, I think maybe our teenage years, he knew about my papa's reputation of being a big drinker and he could he could handle his drink. You know, he could he could out drink anyone. And I mean he could out drink anyone. He had a reputation of being a very good drinker. Uh so my best friend Snoop came over one one new year, New Year's Eve, and he thought I'm gonna go toe to toe with your papa tonight. And Snoop thought he could drink. You know, he was a wild teenager. And he went toe to toe with my papa. And Ultimately, I had to take Snoop somewhere else. I had to go and drop him off at another house because he was a pollution. He, he became too drunk. So, and my papa was completely unfazed by Snoop's efforts. So, he, he was a good guy. Everyone loved my papa. And in, in the village where pretty much all of my family grew up in Banknock in Scotland, um, he was a legend. He used to drink in the local pub. He was a legend there. 
held the karaoke, everyone knew him, everyone loved him, he was very cheeky, um, and he was really just respected by everyone. Now, the reason I, he was someone that I looked up to is people always tell me, especially back then, that I look exactly like him. Not only do I look exactly like him, I act exactly like him. So me and my papa had a similar sense of humour, um, very very cheeky. Um, this, he was always full of jokes, always greeting me with a new joke. Um, he was always very sarcastic. So it was somebody that I really looked up to. He was a bit, he was probably my big a big hero of mine uh, in my life. Um, I was very proud to be his grandson, especially the way everyone was spoke about him so fondly. Um, but his last few days were spent in hospital. And again, we all knew what was coming, but even though he knew what was coming and everyone else knew what was coming, he never lost his sense of humour. And on his deathbed, he gave me a lot of words of wisdom. And one of those words was compassion. Again, this one's, it's a very visual podcast, this one, but one of them was compassion, which you'll see tattooed on my wrist here. I've got the word compassion. Now, the reason uh, I've got the word compassion tattooed there is he told me that the reason that our family are so close is because we all have compassion. And that really stuck with me about showing people compassion because we don't all get along all the time. We don't all sing from the same hymn sheet. But if we've all got compassion for one another, then you'll always be together. You'll always, you'll always see past your differences. And that was one of the things he taught me, is compassion is one of the biggest and the best um, values that you can have. So when he passed away, that, that probably hit me the hardest, that one, um, because he was such a, a, a hero to me and someone that I looked up to a lot and, you know, someone a lot of people looked up to. And on the day of his funeral... I could, you couldn't get in the house. You couldn't get in the house for people. You couldn't get in the garden for people. There was police in the street for the congestion of people. People lined the streets of the village. That's how that's how respected my Papa Billy was. Everyone loved him. Everyone had a story to tell about him. He connected with a lot of people. He wasn't a rich man, but he was rich in friends. He was rich in memories. And he was rich in connections, which again is something that I, I hold very close to me. And it's a value that I hold. You know, he didn't leave with a lot of money in the bank, but he left. I mean, if you looked at his funeral, if if everyone if I could go out like that, that's that's the dream scenario. You know, he left a lot of memories behind. Even after he's gone, people still speak about him. Now we're ten years down the line, not ten years, we're we're twelve years down the line now. And people still talk about my papa. People still tell me I look like my papa um, because he made that much of an impression on people. Now, I've also got the top part of my sleeve up here. I'm not going to show you it for the YouTube people. Um, but the top part of my sleeve, I've actually got my two papa's names up here. In fact, I'll get it. Oh, no. Can I get it? Yeah, I've, got my, I've got my two papa's names up here. I've got Tommy, Tommy here. And I've got Billy here. So that's how much these guys mean to, meant to me, you know. So I've got their two, I've got their two, uh, two names at the top. But not only that, I've got compassion, the two names, and my Papa Billy 
He's two flowers. In his later years, he took up some weird and wonderful hobbies, including making garden gnomes. I don't know what that was about, but I think he was just getting bored in retirement. But he's two flowers, because he really went into his gardening, were a lily and a sunflower. So I've got them tattooed on my arm as well. Now, if you're wondering what that is, YouTube people, on the, the front of my wrist for the iTunes and the Spotify people is St. Anthony. Now, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a religious person. I'm more of a, a spiritual person. But I can see the value and I can see the reasoning behind why people are religious. It's just more of a hope than anything else. Now, St. Anthony on my, wrist, on my wrist here is the saint of lost things, meant to reunite you with lost things, lost people, anything that you've lost is meant to re reunite you with that. So, you know, this sleeve tattoo that I've got, I don't know if you've ever noticed it. If you haven't, you have now. A lot of it is to do with people that I've lost. In fact, the majority of it, if not all of it, is to do with people that I've lost. And it's, it's symbols to, especially my papa, you know, my two papas. I've got the compassion, I've got the two flowers, I've got St. Anthony, and I've got their names up there. So that was it. I lost my two grandparents, two people who are very pivotal in my upbringing, in the, de the development of my, my character and my formative years. These were two guys who are huge, huge parts of my life. Within a couple of months, we're both gone. And you know the grandfather of each family, you know, they're the rock, they're the glue that kind of holds things together. So to lose the, the grandpa, the grandfather on both sides in such a short space of time, that was, that was, that was, I, I don't even know, I can't, I still can't even put that into words. Now, it continues. Just when you think, Jamie, this cannot get any more fucking morbid. I am, you are making me depressed. I hope I'm not making you depressed. I'm trying to make this as lighthearted as I possibly can. I know I'm talking about death here, but 12 years have passed. 12 years have passed since all of this happened. So I'm trying to make light of a bad situation, all right? But it does continue. So I've lost my stepdad's mum. I've lost my friend, uh, Tolly, who I played football with. I've then lost my two grandparents, my two grandpas, the two, you know, head of states of the family. And just after my papa, Billy, passed away, and I don't even think his funeral had been yet, one of my other friends, his name was Mackie, his nickname was Mackie, Jamie Makarinovich, he passed away. Now, when we got the news that Mackie had passed away, we were actually up the town. When I say we, it was me, a couple of my friends, um, my best friend, Snoop, again. Now, he was a very good friend to me and Snoop, and I think it was Snoop's sister that rang us to give us the news that Jamie Makarinovich, Mackie, had passed away. Now, this is when it was really, when I think back to it, it was a very significant moment because the the difference in reaction showed the state of mind or the state of trauma, the state of, you know, disbelief that I was in, especially um, because of the, the amount of things that had happened in a short space of time. My mate Snoop, he naturally burst out crying. He was angry. He was upset. Whereas I laughed. I laughed when I heard that news. I laughed as if it was a laugh to say like, oh, come on. No, come on. You're, you're, you're joking. No, wait, nah. No, another one. Surely no. What's happening? This must be a bad dream. 
you know, what is happening? What's the universe doing here? And I laughed. My, my French snoot was in tears and I, I laughed. I, I couldn't grieve. I couldn't get upset. I was upset on the inside. But externally, I, I was just like, surely no. Like, so this has got to be a big practical fucking joke. Surely. I think I was just becoming like so immune and disillusioned with death that I was, I was pretty much numb to it by this point. Numaki was, again, such an important, you know, I was losing all these important people and Maki at that point in time for me and my best friend Snoop, he was such an important character. You know, he was a maverick. He was older than us. He used to dress how he wanted. He was really, really quirky, but he was a gentleman. Just such a nice guy. Got on with everyone. Again, just someone that got, got on with everyone. And because he was older, because he was wiser, you know, he dressed really cool. He hung out with, like, all the popular people. You know, naturally, we, we warmed him. And he took us under his wing. He didn't need to, you know, but he took us under his wing. And he introduced us to all his friends who, you know, which was a big deal for us because these were all the popular people in town, all the older people in town. And he had us run his, his flat for parties, which we had some of the best nights ever. Wild, wild nights in there. But he was very philosophical as well and just unique. He was a uni unique character. He stood out amongst the rest in our town just because he was so different. You know, he had so many stories to tell. He was very, as I say, he was very philosophical. He had a very different outlook on life to anyone else that I'd ever encountered at that point in time. But unfortunately, um, again, a horrific way to go. He died in a car crash. Um, one night, and it was he, he came off the motorway, crashed into a fence, and that was it. And to this day, whenever I've got to, to go to Edinburgh from Falkirk, my hometown, whether it's going to the airport or whatever, I still pass by that bit of fence where he crashed through, and I still remember him. Even now, I remember him every single time that I drive past that bit of fence because it's still, you know, where he's crashed through, there's like a new bit of fence being put in, it's still a kind of different colour, even after all these years. I still drive by there and think, you know, unfortunately, that's 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 where he passed away. And his funeral, his funeral was just, again, it was like my Papa Billy's funeral. I've never seen so many people, young people, young people who had never dealt with one of their friends passing away before. It was a mixture of a celebration and mourning. People were devastated. This guy had made such a, an impact. Again, very similar to my, my Papa Billy. And I think I, I was very inspired by these two people. You know, people who made genuine impact and in in, like positive impacts in other people's lives. Which is something that I carry dearly with me today. I, I try and make a positive impact in other people's lives. And I think that's why I naturally gravitated towards Mackie. And obviously my, my Papa Billy was, was my hero because, you know, people loved them. Just because of who they were, not because of what they had just because of the way they treated other people. But yeah, the, the funeral was tough. Um, some people, some of his mates sang at his fun funeral. There was a lot of like pictures went up in like a, a projector. You know, we were up there on that projectors in, in the pictures. So it was that was tough. And my best mate Snoop, he took it really hard. You know, that was, he really looked up to Mackie as well. And he actually, he was in a band at the time, very talented songwriter. And he wrote, I've, like, to this day, it's my favourite song that he's ever written. And one of the lyrics was, 
um, You're Beneath My Sun. And again, I go back to the tattoo for the visuals. On my, on my wrist here, I've got Death Leaves a Heartache No One Can Heal. Love Leaves a Memory No One Can Steal. You're Beneath My Sun. Now, that first part is a popular uh, poem or saying or whatever. And then I've added uh, the lyric from my best mate Snoop's song about Mackie. So again, my right arm is just a fucking memorial to people that I've lost. So when people ask me about my tattoos, I actually really enjoy talking about my sleeve on my, my right arm because it's, it's memories for me. It's, it's talking about people who, who made my life a better place to be, who had a massive impact on my life, who had a massive influence on the character that I am. And they're just people that I will never, ever forget and I will always be grateful for either knowing or being related to. So that was it. I'd lost four, five, sorry, five people um, who were very important to me uh, at various, various times in my life. Within, I think, we lost my stepdad's mum in March and the last one was October. So within just a few months, I'd lost five people, five people, which is just, considering that, I mean, I'd lost people in the past here and there, great great grandparents, you know, great grandparents who were really old, who you expected to lose through old age, but never like this, never successive, people you, who had formed serious bonds with, you know, all just gone. Now, throughout this time, um, I also was in a long-term relationship and I actually split up with my girlfriend at the time. And it was safe to say that at this point, I was too young, I was in too much turmoil, and I was too emotionally unstable to ever sustain a relationship at this point. But again, we'd been together for, I think, a year and a half, two years. It really was just like something, another trauma that I did not need in my life at that point in time. And that, again, hit me hard. That was just something else that I had to deal with. But again, I think I couldn't. I couldn't be a proper boyfriend. I was only young. I was 22, 23. I couldn't be a proper boyfriend while all this other stuff in my life was going on. And, you know, for my girlfriend at the time as well, that's a lot to take on. That's a lot to take on for anyone, never mind someone so young. So ultimately, I think that played a massive part in the breakup because I was just in such a bad place. So I was probably really unbearable, which I think I was. To be honest, I was just, I was unbearable. I, there was no way... I don't think even Ivana, the most patient Ivana would have put up with me back then. Um, I was just in such a bad place. Now, towards the end of the year, I think or October, November, around about November time, um, up until this point, I'd been in a four-year apprenticeship as a plumber and a gas engineer. A very fine trade. A very fine trade indeed. Um, it was for a company in Grangemouth, which is a local town to me. Uh, there's not a lot to see there, other than like the BP, the British Petro Petroleum. But uh, that's that's where I done my my apprenticeship at a company called the McDougal Group. And I thought at that time, I don't know why, I thought this would be a great time to apply for a new job. Before I'd even finished my apprenticeship, I had applied for British Gas. Now, if you imagine like the Premier League in the UK. The McDougal group are probably... Who's at the bottom? I think Man United are bottom of the league. Just kidding, just kidding. 
whoever's at the bottom, let's just say uh, Aston Villa. If the McDougall group were Aston Villa, then the British Gas were Liverpool. Champions of the Europe, champions of world, champions soon to be of England. That was British Gas. So a massive gulf and you know, British Gas are a massive company in the UK. I think they employ over 9,000 engineers. Um, yeah, they've got all, you know, they're, they're the dominant force when it comes to, to gas, uh, domestic gas systems and all that kind of stuff. So they were just a very big company is what I'm trying to say. A very big company compared to the McDougall Group who were just a local trade company. So there's very different standards between the two. So when I applied for the job, I did not expect to hear anything back because I had heard up until that point that they only hired experienced engineers, which naturally you would expect from a company with that stature and that prestige. They only want the very best and the very best is usually the very oldest because they've got all the experience and I had none. I hadn't even, be, I hadn't even finished my apprenticeship at this point. But you know what? I thought, fuck it. I must have been out of my mind with trauma and death at that point. And I thought, I could get this job. I may as well just go for it, see what happens. It's loads more money than I'm getting. It's going to be better conditions, so let's just go for it. Lo and behold, I got an interview. And I thought, how the, how the hell did I get an interview? But anyway, I went along to the interview. And before I knew it, I got the job. And all of a sudden, I was in the induction. And then all of a sudden, I started it. I started a new job as an engineer with British Gas. And I thought, holy shit, how did that happen? How did I get my way into this? Because I knew that the the, the trade and the training that I'd had up until that point, it wasn't good enough. Um, especially in the last six months where I wasn't really paying attention to work because every other week I was off going to a funeral or whatever. Um, so the last six months of my trade, I, I, I really downed tools, pardon the pun. Uh, and it was after the induction, as soon as I started, I realized I was actually out of my depth. I had no fucking clue what I was doing. The standards that they had and the standards that I was used to were, they weren't even night and day. They were well beyond that. Um, and my new boss actually noticed this very quickly. He was asking me to do things that I'd never even heard of before. Things that were very basic in the British Gas Handbook. And he said he had the right to let me go there and then. It was almost like I'd committed fraud telling him that I'd, I'd, I could do all the tasks that they had advertised in the, um, and for the, for the job application. And I told him I could do all that stuff. And I really, I should have been taught how to do it, but I couldn't. So all of a sudden, my new boss is telling me that, you know, I might be getting let go as soon as I was in the door. I'd left my old company, started this new one. I was already four or five weeks in. Um, and he was like, you're not good enough. You're nowhere near good enough. You don't know a thing. You don't know anything and that we need you to know. You're, you're, the standards are not there. But to his credit, he put me in a six-week intensive training program with the other engineers, like the, the more experienced engineers, to try and get me up to, to scratch. And he says, you've got, you know, you've got these weeks to prove yourself or we'll let you go. And it was as simple as that. We'll let, we need to let you go. You're just, we need someone to come in and hit the ground running and you know, we're busy, this time of year we're busy, and we need someone to be able to perform the task, so if you cannot get up to speed, then we will need to let you go. So changing jobs wasn't easy um, at that point, especially going from one environment to another, which was a completely different environment, a different set of standards, and I've got my boss telling me I've got six weeks to, you know, buckle up my, buck up my ideas, or I'm out the door, I'm unemployed, 
So I thought, you know what? You know what's a good thing to add into the mix? Let's buy your first property. That's right, I bought my first property. As I got the new job, I thought, fantastic, I am getting all these new wages. Um, I've got a wee bit of savings in the bank for a deposit. My mum, my dad, my stepmom, my stepdad contributed towards the deposit. So I thought, yes, I am going to buy my first property. 2008, you remember what 2008 was? It was a recession. So I thought, let's buy my first property in a recession after suffering all these traumas. I'm about to get fired. Let's buy a flat. It came with high interest, so the monthly payments were extortionate compared to what you would have paid a year before or even a year after once the recession had passed. Um, I struggled to get a mortgage because of my age, because I was a first-time buyer, um, but luckily I got one. It was a fucking rip-off, but there you go. It was the only one that was getting offered to me. The flat was a three-bedroom flat, and it needed a hell of a lot of work done. Now, the people who were in before me smoked like a couple of chimneys. You know, you could peel the nicotine off the ceiling. And the flat just, it was stinking. It was rotten. It was, yeah, it was disgusting. So I literally, we literally had to take out everything. And I mean everything. The doors, we had to take off all the paint, all the woodwork. We had to, to the, we had to rip it back to the bare bones. So it needed so much work done. It needed so much work and it needed so much money thrown into it. Now I've just bought this place. I put down a deposit, right? So I've spent all my money. And now I'm, now I'm being told that by the way, that new mortgage you've just got with all the monthly payments, you know, in six weeks' time, if you don't buck up your ideas, then you're not going to be able to afford that. But I'm already in up to my eyeballs at this point. Um, I've signed the contract. I've moved in. I've got the keys. So there's no going back. Now, to ease the pain of the monthly payments, two of my best friends said that they would move in to, to help with the rent. Because uh, I had two spare rooms, it's got three bedrooms, so they were going to move in to the two, the two spare rooms. But at that point, because it was so, it's such a fucking shithole, that no one could move in. I couldn't even move in at that point. So the time was against me to get this thing finished, to get this thing livable and habitable, um, so that they could move in and I could move in, but ultimately so I could get start getting rent payments. I wanted to start collecting rent from them so I could afford the mortgage, especially as I had the, the threat of my job being taken away from me um, right at the early stages. So you think about it, I went through all those deaths, split with my girlfriend, changed jobs, which I was about to get fired in after like week one, and I bought a house during a recession, all within about eight months. After 22 years of fucking plane sailing. How about that? Now at this point... Um, Naturally, I was drinking heavily. I was drinking very heavily. Now, at the point, I didn't realize that. And I was going to almost every single night that I could. Any opportunity that I had. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of time. I had work. But I was still going to. I was going to on a Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Any night that anyone offered me to go out. Whether it was to Stirling or Falkirk or Glasgow or Edinburgh. If, if there was an opportunity to go out, I was going out. It didn't matter who it was, I would say yes. Because I was going to go out and get drunk. I was going to go out and just forget about everything that was going on. All of this shit that had happened and was continuing to happen. When you, when you consider, you know, the flat situation, it's still, it's still not done. Like, it's still a shithole. Uh, and I need my friends to move in, so it needs a lot of work done. It needs a lot of money thrown at it. 
my job situation, the pressure was well and truly on, like there was a fire under Mars to get better very quickly. The financial situation, you know, I'd spent all my money on this new flat um, just to buy it. You know, I was having to like go from paycheck to paycheck to like to buy new doors and paint and all that kind of stuff. Then you add in all of the losses that I just experienced, experienced up until that point. You better believe I was fragile. I didn't see it though. I didn't see it. You know, I was, and it sounds crazy to say, but I was drinking things like absinthe. Now, absinthe is like, it's just, I think it's as close to as like pure alcohol that you can get. Like absinthe is like, it kills brain cells. There's, without a doubt, it kill, kills brain cells. And I think this stuff was like, like, I think friends were bringing back like black absinthe or like green absinthe or whatever. And they were bringing it back from holiday and it was like banned in some countries and stuff like that. It was like 60% alcohol or 80%, I think it was 80% alcohol. I'm sure it was. I mean, I can't remember because as soon as I drank it, I had memory loss, but I th I'm pretty sure it was 80%. And before we would go out, you know, I'd sit and drink like 10 cans of cider. And before we go out, and be like, right, let's do a round of absinthe. So I'd do two rounds of absinthe. And this is before we've even set foot at the door. Now, throughout this period, like on several occasions, I would wake up and I would, I would have lost my phone I would have lost my money, my wallet, and all of the above. Sometimes I wake up and I've lost it all. No recollection of the night before. Complete blackout. No idea how I got home. No idea where my stuff is. No idea where I'd been. And there was one time, and it sounds, um, it sounds a bit shocking to say, I genuinely woke up in a bush and not even like, you know, a bush outside your home, you know, sometimes you get locked out and you go, fuck it, I'll just sleep in a bush. I woke up in a bush next to the retail park. Now my house is like 20, probably about a, a five minute walk from the retail park. So I must've been that tired and that blacked out. I thought, you know what? This looks like, a, this looks comfy. This looks warm. I'll just sleep here tonight. I woke up in a bush next to the retail park. Now my best mate, Snoop, now he, he likes a drink as much as the best of them. And he's he's a bit of a party boy and a wild animal at times as well, um, which yeah, he would he would tell you himself. But when he tells you that you're drinking too much, that's when you should sit up and take notice. And he was, he one night during a party in the flat, it was still a shithole. It actually looked like an underpass because I had everyone who came in sign their name on the wall with spray paint. Now this is before it was decorated. But it looked like an underpass, you know, had like we had patio furniture, you know, I had like deck chairs and just it was just it looked like an underpass. It was it, it was cool, but it, it looked it looked terrible. But anyway, we we're, were having a party in the flat, which would happen every Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Um, and he, he told me, like, you, you know, you're drinking too much. And this happened during the time where, you know, I drank to the point where my skin was not only red. Now, this is like skin on my body. My skin was not only red, my skin became raised. So like, I mean, and I've never seen it since, but the skin on my body was actually raised. So it was like a rash that was raised. And he was like, you need to sort yourself out. You need to sort yourself out. And I thought, oh, fuck. I actually said to him, and I spoke about this the other day, and he says to me, I accused him of being boring. I said, stop being boring. But again, 
I was so deep into this medication of alcohol that, you know, the party lifestyle was a lifestyle that meant I didn't need to face up to all the traumas that I was going through and had been through and I, I, didn't, need, I didn't need to grieve. You know, it just kept the, grie- the grief at bay. Now, the drink was definitely affecting my relationship with friends. Um, it was affecting relationships with, like, with women as well. I was not a good guy to women at that point. And if by any chance any of them are listening uh, to this, then I do apologize because I was a bit of a, I was just, I was just horrible to, pe- to people who I got close to at that point. I think it was just because I was losing everyone. I was scared to get close to anyone and anyone that got close to me, I was just horrible to them, especially when I was drunk with alcohol and stuff like that. It was just that I, I ruined so many potential relationships and I was just, I was just wasn't kind, especially to women. And it's just, Nah, it's no good to think back about and and to think about how I used to treat people. Um, so I've got a lot of remorse, especially during those years, how I used to treat people, especially how I used to treat um, like women and like uh, and relationships and stuff like that. Just because I wasn't get, I wasn't good, I wasn't good. But it's no excuse. But I just wasn't in a good place. You know, a young man going through all this grief and trauma, and I didn't know how to deal with. It, and I was just wasn't nice to people that tried to get close to me. Um, and that was it. But the unlikely saviour, the unlikely saviour, I go back to British Gas and my new boss who says, I have got, I could let you go. I could I could sack you here and now. The guy that gave me another opportunity to prove myself, to, you know, to, to show that I have, in fact, got the skills to be an engineer for British Gas. And he told me that um, I had improved. My stand, like my, you know, my techniques had improved. My knowledge had improved. Uh, my skills had improved. But he said my performance was really low in terms of my output. Like I was turning up late. I was going home early. Um, you know, I was spending too long in jobs because I was just probably tired from the night before and going out. Um, I was I was turning up to work tired, and hungover. Uh, my head just wasn't in it, you know, by this point, I just, I just don't think I cared, you know, I, I think I cared enough that, you know, I thought, well, I've got bills to pay, and the next night out's not going to pay for itself, so I cared enough to, to keep my job, but I didn't care enough to, you know, really push myself or excel, but to his credit, instead of disciplining me or letting me go, all he done was I remember he came to see me on a job one day and he, he, I got into his car and he just said to me, are you all right? Are you okay? And I was like, I was shocked. I was like, I don't think anyone had asked me that up until that point. Just I'm like, just in, as simple as that, are you all right? Are you okay? And I was like, well, why are you asking me that? And then he just he highlighted my deterioration. He said, you know, he said, you're a good guy. Clearly you're a good guy. He says, obviously you've definitely got talent because you've managed to improve so much in a short space of time. You know, you are a good engineer ultimately. Um, but he knew that my performance was a reflection on the fact that my head just wasn't in it. I wasn't trying hard enough. I was just floating through each day. I was just working in a daze basically. And it was there and then that he referred me to occupational health through British Gas who then referred me to a, a therapist. And this was my first encounter with a therapist. And I've never, I never spoke about this for years upon years. 
I never told anyone that I was going to see a therapist. And I thought, at this, you know, I, at this point, I thought I was okay. I thought I was coping just fine. Now, after one meeting with this therapist, I forget her name, I think it was Kay in Cumbernauld, Kay from Cumbernauld, I think it was her, I think that was her name. After one meeting with her, I realised I, in fact, was not okay. I wasn't okay at all. And after six sessions, because that's what occupational health gave me, they gave me six sessions with this, this therapist, I realised that I wasn't coping at all. I was in no way, shape or form coping. And I th how I didn't see it, I do not know. The mind works in mysterious ways. And I was ultimately masking my grief with alcohol. And that was it. Like I, When I think back to it, I think, how the fuck did I not see that? How did I not see that? Like, how reckless I was. How reckless and how much of it on a path of like self-destruction. Like, as I say, I was going to every night. I'd never done that up to that point. Like, I didn't even drink until I was like 20, 21. So then a year or two later, I'm drinking every night. So how I didn't see the polar opposite that I was living my life, especially after all that grief and all that trauma. But again, like, it just shows you like the mind, the mind is powerful. And it can work against you as much as it can work for you. And mind just shut down. Mind just blocked. Mind just resisted. Didn't want to deal with grief. Didn't want to deal with trauma. Didn't want to deal with being upset or loss. So I was just drinking. I was getting out my face as much as I possibly could. And this therapist, she told me one thing that, that sticks with me um, forever. And it's one thing that everyone should really know. Is that, you know, it takes, on average nine months to mourn a trauma. Now, a trauma can be anything. It can be anything. It can be a loss, obviously a loss of a relative. It can be the ending of a relationship. It can be changing jobs. It can be moving house. You can see where I'm going with this. I dealt with a lot of different trauma. She told that, and that was basically the list that she gave me. She says it can deal with, it can take nine months for each trauma to pass and for you to deal with each trauma. But I had collectively had all of these traumas back to back and in one single set setting. And she she made me realize that it was okay to, to feel the way I felt and to, to be, you know, dealing with it. She, she didn't say it was okay the way I was dealing with it, but she, she made me aware of the fact that I wasn't dealing with it properly and that I needed to change the way that I dealt with grief and I needed to, to face it and I needed to think about it and I need to deal with it head on rather than just mask it with alcohol and ruin relationships and, you know, I could have lost my job and which would have led to me losing my flat. And again, I didn't tell anyone that I was seeing her because I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed that I was seeing a therapist. I didn't want people to think I was weak. But the biggest reason was I did not want to burden anyone with any more trauma. After so Everyone around me had been through some sort of trauma. So I didn't want to just go, oh, poor me, I'm, I'm, I'm sad, I'm sad. Because everyone else was sad as well. So I didn't want to burden anyone with it and I didn't want to talk about it. And no one else really spoke about it in my family. Like, we're not very good at speaking about these things. I think they'll all agree. We all like to just keep it inside. And as a 22, 23 year old guy, keeping all of that inside for the first time ever, 
it almost ruined everything. So, in the end, I did go on to repay my boss's compassion for me. Uh, I went on to become a very good engineer. I worked with British Gas for nine years, right up until the point I quit to to come to to go travelling. And there was points for him and for other managers that I actually stood in for them um, because they trusted me. I was I became that much of a decent engineer that they actually trusted me um, to stand in for them as well. Now, Gordon, who was my manager's name, Gordon Hunter, he'll never know the significance of that moment, that time he pulled me in his car and asked if I was okay and showed me some compassion. He will never know that one act. He probably forgot about it by the end of that day. But for me, that was a pivotal moment in my life. Because if you think, that was at the height of when I just wasn't dealing with things. If you'd pulled me in and said, Jamie, you know what? This is not working. It's not, it's not working. I'm going to let you go. All of a sudden, I'm unemployed. And I'm not in the right mindset to, to get on a new job. Uh, you know, an immediate, almost immediate sacking. That doesn't look good in the CV. So if I lose my job, I lose my income. I lose my income, I can't afford my flat. My world would have just folded like a fucking pack of cards at that point. So that compassion that day, that compassion is something that I'll never, ever forget. And again, I go back to the word compassion. I've got it on the wrist. It keeps coming back full circle. That's what my papa told me. That's what, you know, my manager, uh, he, he showed towards me on that day. And it just goes to show you, you know, you should never judge someone by how they treat you or the way that they are. Because sometimes you just don't know what they're going through. You just don't know what they're going through and the things they might not be telling you. Like th that plus many other moments in my life, including my papa, including my, uh, my, uh, my manager Gordon. It, it taught me a lesson to show everyone compassion, first and foremost. The worst thing that you can do is judge someone straight away or before you've even met them or assume the worst because you do not know what they are going through. So compassion for me is so, so valuable. And eventually I did finish my flat. It was beautiful. I think I finished it actually by the end of somewhere in 2010. So two years later, it was completely done. We moved in long before then, but it was really done in 2010. My friends moved in in 2009 and it was a beautiful flat. I still have the flat. Obviously, I do not live in it now, but I still have it. And I've had it for 12 years now. And I have had some of the best years of my life in that flat, especially the early years once I got a, you know, once I got a handle on my, my drinking. But that year did change me, 2008. It made me more resilient to loss. It made me more aware of my traumas and how to deal with them. It was it was my first brush with mental health. It was the first time I'd ever even thought about mental health being a thing. Like, I just thought sometimes you felt sad, sometimes you felt happy, sometimes you wanted to cry, and sometimes you were excited. And that was just it. I didn't realize that mental health went as deep as it can go and as I'd ever realized how layered it was it was actually was. Now I'm very grateful to my boss, to that therapist, 
to the to my friends and my family throughout that time, especially those who were closest to me and see me almost on a daily basis. And and it stuck by me because I was off the rails and I must have been an absolute handful and probably a nightmare to deal with at that point. I, I was I was a nightmare. Um, but if I was to look for a moral or to say, well, what value has this podcast brought other than you just talking about all the people that are dead? Um, it would just be a, like, just be aware of your traumas. Be aware of them. If you, f- if, so, if you are drinking a lot of alcohol or you're taking drugs for avoidance, you know, be aware of what might be causing that. What are you, what are you trying to mask? You know, you know, if someone you love or that's very, very close to you tries to help you by saying your actions might be destructive, they might try, try to show some kind of intervention, then know that comes from the heart. It doesn't mean that they're, they're being out of order. It means they, they genuinely care about you. They genuinely, they, they love you. And you should really take notice of that. A lot of people, when they're in that state of mind of they're, they're on drugs or they're drinking or they're in denial, when someone tries to intervene and say, by the way, you're not okay. You're not okay. You're not dealing with this. Then the person that they're saying it to usually takes offense. They don't like to hear that they're not dealing with something. It's a sign of weakness and they don't want that to be pointed out. So if someone says that to you, as hard as it may be, then you've got to take notice. You've got to take notice. Now on the flip side of that, on the flip side of that, you've got to look out for your friends. You've got to look out for your friends. You've got to look out for your family, your work colleagues, or just anyone you come in contact with. If you meet someone in a cafe and they they might be sad or upset or angry, you just don't know who is going through a hard time. You should always show patience, empathy, but above all else, like my papa told me in his deathbed and like my manager Gordon done for me, you need to show people compassion. Like I think in the, this day and age, a lot of us don't have compassion. It's too easy just to go, but you know what? That person's just been a dick or that person's been a, a you know, a bitch. Uh, not interested. But they might be going through a really difficult time and it might be, you might be the person, the perfect person at that moment to help someone. And I had people who stuck with me when they could have just said, you know what, Jamie, you're a nightmare. Away you go. I could They could have done that at that moment in time, but they showed compassion, so... I think that's the value that I'm trying to bring through all this trauma and all the deaths, you know, show compassion, show compassion and make sure you deal with your traumas properly, don't drink, don't take drugs, deal with your trauma and we all deal with trauma in different ways by the way, some people do it better than others, alright, so there's no right or wrong way to deal with trauma, Just but just don't mask it, talk to people, tell people how you feel, don't mask it with the wrong things. All right, and that's the value I think I want to bring with this podcast and my story and my worst year ever. But I came back like a phoenix for the flames, um, and I I didn't let that year ruin me. It could have it could have ruined me, but I let it define me. I feel like that year defined who I am, and that's it. That's the end of the episode. I'm going to take a wee drink now. Now, to round up, I would usually have some questions. But 
No one sent any questions this week, which I'm a wee bit disappointed about. I do enjoy the question round. Um, if you've made it this far in the podcast, episode three podcast, then please make sure that you send me a question next week. Just a voice note. Ask me anything. It doesn't need to be related to the topic. All right. Um, so there's no questions to answer this week, which means I've got, a, you know, I get to finish up early. It's like finishing up early on a Friday because I don't have any questions. But I'm going to talk about the Patreon account. I started a Patreon account this week. Um, for those of you who do not know what a Patreon account is, basically like a third party website where you can, you know, donate money. Not donate money because it's not like I'm not a charity. Um, it's like you can pledge money towards me. If you get some value from this podcast. Now, the whole Patreon thing, right? One of my friends, Sean, if you're watching this, I know you do watch this podcast. You reached out to me this week and he said, you know, why are you asking people to, to give you ideas on which topics to talk about? And why are you giving, why are you asking people for money in the form of this patron account? You know, why should why should we pay to make you famous? Now, first and foremost, I was a bit offended, Sean. I did take that the wrong way, um, as I sure, I'm sure you know by my probably my response. But then I did realise it was it's a valid question. You know, from someone on the outside looking in think must think, you're in Bali, you're living the best life ever, you know, why the fuck should I give you money to make these podcasts? Okay. Now, I would probably think the same. I must admit, I probably would think the same. Now, first and foremost, I do not want to be famous. I do not want to be famous. I mean, I wouldn't mind being famous. It has got its benefits, but I don't want to be famous. Um, let's let's touch on the, why did I commit, why did I ask people to give me ideas for topics now? You know, I ask people to commit ideas because I really value the audience that Ivana and I have built with Wandering 2 and that I hope to build with Jamie's Wee Podcast. I value every single person that follows. Now, people say that and it's very cliche, but I genuinely do. Every time someone sends a DM to tell me that they've wa watched or listened to this podcast or whatever, that means the world to me that someone's committed some of their time um, into engaging with what I do. So when I ask people to commit ideas for, you know, what should I talk about this week, it's because I want everyone that watches this or that listens to this, I want you to feel a part of this. You know, this is, as much as it's Jamie's wee podcast, I want to talk about things that you want to hear. You know, I want you to be a part of it. I want you to be able to ask questions, to, to have some input and to suggest topics. Now, in terms of the money, now, again, Ivana and I, with, especially we wandered on two and now Jamie's wee podcast, I am starting from ground zero here. Everything that I've done so far and probably will continue to do for probably the next 97 episodes will be out of my own pocket. Stu the studio, the equipment, the time, you know, all of this stuff. It's, it's all going to be out of my own pocket. Now, the, the podcast takes me three, four days from start to finish. And I mean morning until night, like when I wake up until I go to bed. Because I've got to plan it. I've got to plan my topic. I've got to kind of write a rough idea of what I'm going to be talking about. I've got to film it, which is what I'm doing now. That takes like a, that's a two hour window. And then I spend like a day and a half editing the audio and the video, especially the video for YouTube because I've got to add all the thumbnails and all that kind of shit. 
And then I've got to promote it. You know, there's no point in doing all that if you don't promote it properly. And I promote it across multiple channels, which all require different things. So all this takes time. So when you think three, four days of my time doing something that I am no money from, then, you know, it, it, it's no sustainable. It's basically what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, the studio and the hardware costs, I don't get paid for doing this. I don't get paid for doing this. This is just something that I enjoy doing. And when I ask people to become patrons through this this third party, um, patreon.com forward slash Jamie's Wee Podcast, it's because if you value this content, if you're listening to this right now, it's, it means that you value it in some way, shape or form. And I would appreciate, you know, if you could, you know, pledge, make a pledge towards this podcast to help with the running costs, to help with the input, um, to help be part of this whole process. It would take some of the the, the the financial strain from me in making this podcast. Because if I don't monetize this long term, then I, I can't really sustain it. And I, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep doing this. I've got, this is just the beginning. You know, what you're seeing now is the, the very beginning. This is the shit bit at the start. You know, when you look back and you go, fuck's sake, look, remember episode three? <laughs> that was a shiter. You know, this is this is that part. So it's only going to get better from here. But I can't sustain it if I'm doing it and earning absolutely nothing from it. Um, so that is why I've asked people to become patrons. Now, if you become a patron, then, you know, there are benefits involved as well by com- becoming a patron. You get, you know, you can get a shout out on this podcast. You can get um, social shares as well on the stories, not just the Jamie's Wee Podcast stories, but also on Wondering 2 stories. But the biggest thing, is you can also get links from our website, backlinks from our website, and links back to your social media channels as well, which we value very highly and we charge money for when whenever a company reaches out to us uh, for a backlink, you know, we charge for it. But with Patreon, you're getting a very good deal because I'm giving a very good deal to people who want to pledge this podcast. So it's not just like, Jamie, there's some money, go and spend it on a bin tang. It's, it's like, Jamie, there's some money towards your day-to-day running costs, um, because yeah, I want to keep this going and if you are listening to this or watching this, I would be very grateful if you could become a patron. If not, okay, I don't mind, that's fantastic. I'm just happy that you're here, but if you can, it would mean the world to me and it means I can sustain this long term. So please check it out, patron, that's the reason I started it. Thanks Sean for highlighting uh, and for making me bring this up um, and, and to talk about why I started the patron account. I don't just want donations. I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be famous. I just want to be able to sustain this podcast. That's the simplest basic answer. Now, I want to thank my one and only patron that I've got right now. And that is Stephanie. Thank you so much, Stephanie. You are getting the biggest shout out this week because you are the only one. You're the first one, the only one. And... You signed up to become a wee patron premium, which means you get the shout out. So thank you very much, Stephanie. I will make sure to put down your Instagram handle here as well, because it's bought and paid for, and you deserve it, um, and you deserve the extra long shout out, because you know you're the first. So thank you very much, Stephanie. You're a legend, an absolute legend. Uh, so yes, please check out the Patreon website for more details, okay? Um, so as I say, there's no questions this week, so it's time to conclude this week's episode. Um, as I say, if you have any questions, just, it doesn't matter what it is. I'll answer, I'll answer anything. 
anything. Just if, whether it's related to Instagram or day-to-day life, relationships, I will answer anything. Just send in some questions. I love hearing your lovely voices, your lovely accents, and I love communicating with you through the medium of this podcast. So I guess I'll I'll round this up now. I need to go. Um, my flight does leave in less than 12 hours. I haven't packed and I'm getting picked up at 4 a.m. And I'm off to see Ivana for Valentine's Day. I haven't seen Ivana in four weeks. And it, I must admit, it has went like that. As much as I missed her, it has went like that. Um, but I, I'm looking forward to seeing her. I'm really looking forward to seeing her. The time apart has done us the world of good. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed the worst year of my life and all the deaths uh, and everything else. I hope it was entertaining for you. I hope you took at least some some bits of value from it. And by the time you're watching this, I will probably in sunny Perth, Australia. 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 That's terrible. I need to work on that. I'll be in sunny Perth um, by the time that you watch this on Sunday, hopefully, when it gets released. So that's it. This has been Jamie's Wee Podcast with big personalities and subjects sprinkled with a wee bit of Scottish humour. I'll see you next week. Bye.